Welcome to our continuing 2019 educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Steve Wilder, Senior Consultant and COO of Sorensen Wilder & Associates with us today. Steve has spent the past 35 years in healthcare safety, security, and risk management. He has provided consultation services to hundreds of clients, including hospitals, long-term care, home care agencies, clinics, physician practices, and pre-hospital EMS services. Steve has performed security vulnerability assessments and mock OSHA audits to over 300 healthcare facilities across the United States and has trained thousands of workers in workplace safety and security. As an experienced trial expert, Steve consults for law firms and insurance companies on issues of healthcare safety, security, non-clinical risk management, aggression management, and workplace violence. He also has written numerous articles for healthcare magazines and trade journals. He and his partner, Chris Sorensen, are co-authors of the book, The Essentials of Aggression Management in Healthcare, From Talkdown to Takedown. Steve also writes a monthly safety column for Long-Term Living Magazine. In 2010, they introduced their Essentials of Aggression Management training program in hospitals designed to train healthcare professionals to de-escalate aggression behavior before it becomes violent and to train physical aggression in ways that protect both the caregiver and patients while remaining cognizant of patient rights. Today, that program is being used in hospitals across the nation. Steve is a founding member, member and past president of the Illinois Society of Health Care Risk Management, and also served two years on the Education Committee of the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management. He earned his bachelor's degree in business administration from Governor State University in University Park, Illinois. He is a board certified healthcare safety professional and holds certification in CFATS and HSEP with the United States Department of Homeland Security. Steve also spent 35 years in fire service and is a retired fire chief in the suburbs of Chicago. In 2018, Steve was the recipient of the Illinois Security Professionals Association Award for Emergency Preparedness Leadership. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There's no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. So Steve, a warm welcome. Thanks, Catherine. Appreciate the kind words and thanks for having me back again. I think this is the uh, third or fourth time in the last couple of years I've had the privilege of joining you and, and your members, and uh, it, it's always an honor and a privilege to be with you. 
Uh, that being said, I, I never like to have to talk about some of the topics we talk about these days, and today is certainly no exception to that. Uh, I don't think any of us, and I've you know, been, as Catherine said, I've got to update that bio because, boy, it's starting to make me sound very old. Uh, I've got uh, uh, a lot of years of experience in this, and, and never in my 35 years now in healthcare risk management did I ever think that we would be spending so much time talking about workplace violence and talking about active shooters and uh, uh, assaults on campuses and things like that. But it just seems like that's happening so commonly now that we're just spending uh, a majority of our time talking about it and working with our clients and putting together programs and training programs uh, to deal with it. So the focal point today, though, is, is something that I'm very passionate about, and, and that is how do we go about dealing with a person whose behaviors are starting to escalate before they become physically violent with us and we end up being a victim of an act of violence. Uh, you know, we work with people all the time. We work with clients all the time. Uh, and I've interviewed, I don't know how many people in my career that have been the victims of an aggressive act in the healthcare facility. And if there's been a commonality, I've always heard, it's them saying, gosh, Steve, I don't know what happened. One minute he was fine. The next minute he was just going off on me and beating up me. And when I hear that, I really realize that that, that doesn't happen. People don't typically go from calm to physically violent. Uh, they, they usually go through some behavioral changes that lead up to it. So today what we're going to try to accomplish is we're going to try to identify some of the, the common characteristics of a person with a propensity to aggressive behavior. And then we're going to look at the changes that a person will go through between calm and physically violent and, and ways that we can recognize it and ways that we can diffuse it before they're growing lumps on our head. That being said, I'm going to skip the bio. You've already heard enough about me. Some of the different types of workplace violence that we deal with in, in the healthcare facilities is criminal acts against the workplace. You know, offices, schools, night retail hospitals, it, just about any business or industry has to deal with the criminal element. And I've seen everything in my own hospitals and in my client hospitals from uh, uh, sexual assaults against healthcare workers to, uh, you know, graffiti on the walls. So, all types of criminal acts against the workplace. Criminal acts by terrorists, arsonists, and activists. And, and you know, fortunately, we don't see too many of those. Uh, uh, we do have concerns about uh, terrorism in hospitals, uh, but, but not like we were having uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. This next one, domestic and relationship issues, guys. You know, this is the one that scares the bejeebies out of me. This is the one that causes so many of our problems other than the uh, uh, problematic or impaired patient. Uh, domestic violence is such a threat to us. So many of our active shooter events are resulting from domestic violence. You know, all of us have employees who have things going on in their homes, who have things going on in their lives. And I'm no different. I'm an employer. We've got staff of about 18 employees now. And, you know, I, like you, have employees who have things going on in their homes that we don't know anything about uh, and probably, with exception, don't really have a need to know. But at the same time, those incidents, those uh, situations that I spoke about in the homes have a way of finding their ways into the workplace and can and have become very violent. We've also got violence against one employee against another. And that's not an uncommon situation. And this also would include ex-employees who return to the workplace. 
certainly just in the last couple of weeks, I'm domiciled in the south suburbs of Chicago. Just in the last couple of weeks, we had an incident. We've had an incident here in the Chicagoland area where an individual is being terminated from his job. He knew in advance he was being terminated that day. So he brought a handgun into work with him and ended up uh, shooting a number of people in the workplace before he shot and killed himself. He ended up killing the HR director. He ended up killing a couple of people in the office. Uh, sadly, he killed a student intern who was there on his first day as an intern and lost his life that first day. So, you know, these are some of the situations we're dealing with in the workplace. And we've got violence against managers, supervisors, educators, uh, people who are in positions of authority uh, over other people. So, you know, we, we've got all these different types of violence. They're applicable to healthcare, but they're really applicable across all industry lines as well. Now, one of the things when we're doing training, and I know I'm moving kind of quickly, and I'll please ask you, if you have questions, there is a place to submit them, and we'll take questions at the end. Uh, one of the things I frequently get asked is, hey, Steve, is there, a, uh, is there a way we can recognize somebody who might have a propensity to this type of behavior? And we're very careful on this because we don't want to sit here and uh, label a person and we don't want to profile. But there have been a lot of studies out there that ha have kind of summed up and said, yeah, there are some common characteristics. First of all, his persons with a history of pathological blaming. This is the individual who can do anything they want to do. And they can find a way to justify their behavior by blaming somebody else. If you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. So when you're dealing with somebody, and you know the old adage that they don't realize when they're pointing one finger at someone, they're pointing three fingers back at themselves. Uh, you know, the, these are people who are capable of this type of behavior. The next one would be coming up shortly, I hope. There we go, depression. Now, this is one that always scares me because I don't want to sound like I'm suggesting that people with a history of depression are a danger. They are not. But I've been doing this for a long time. I can remember years ago when depression first became a clinical diagnosis. And if somebody was diagnosed with clinical depression, everybody around them would take three steps back, hoping it wasn't contagious. And boy, I look back on those days, and that was just terrible. Fortunately, the studies have come so far now in dealing with depression and helping to treat people with history and the medications that are available now. And we've learned so much about it. Person with a history of depression is typically no risk to anyone. They're probably more of a risk to themselves than they are to anyone else. Where we have a problem though with people with depression, and it still happens to this day, is so often they'll take their medications as prescribed by their physician until they feel better. And then they think, well, I don't need it anymore, and they stop taking it. And every time they start, or excuse me, every time they stop taking it, it falls out of balance a little bit more. And the more it falls out of balance, the harder it is to titrate it back into balance and the more frustrated they become. And they do have uh, a known history then of turning to aggressive behavior, uh, either against themselves or against other people. This next one is always a challenge to us because it involves uh, somehow we need to be able to track violent behavior. We know that a history of violence, it's not a one and done. Typically, people who turn to violence to manage their problems once will do it again and again. We also know that there's that faction of our society that has no problem with using violence to solve its problems. We need to make sure that we set up good documentation programs and that we have a way of flagging so that when a patient has a, a violent outbreak, that we have some way to flag that so that it's recognized and known to everybody that there has been a past incident. 
we're not going to treat them any different. Please appreciate that. We're still going to treat them with all the respect and dignity and compassion we would treat any patient. But at the same time, we need to flag it so we go into that room with a heightened sense of awareness. I think one of the nicest systems I've ever seen for this was a number of years ago, we were doing this training uh, at a hospital in the suburbs of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And when they had a violent incident, they their code term, and, and you probably hear me say some point in the program today, I hate color codes because we've just got two doggone many of them now and it's too easy to confuse them. And it's just a matter of time before somebody confuses them and walks into a situation and loses their life. But that being said, uh, they had the, the color code that they used for a uh, violent emergency was code purple. So if they had to call a code purple on a patient, what they ended up doing is uh, when everything was settled down, with a click of the mouse on the screen on their on their uh, uh, EMR, they were able to click a box and it would put about a one half inch purple border around the screen. Didn't say anything else. All you knew now, if you were a caregiver, when you looked at that chart, that electronic record, you saw that purple border, you knew at some point in the past, and it stayed there forever now, you knew at some point in the past they had a code purple called on them. So you went into that room with a heightened sense of awareness that they did have a past history of violence and that there was a likelihood that they could become violent again. Interest in weapons is another one, and we have to be careful with this one as well because uh, uh, we live in an age now where all 50 states have some form of a concealed carry law, and you have people, i.e. myself, who five years ago would never have considered carrying a firearm who carry one regularly now, legally. But just because a person has an interest in weapons doesn't make them a risk to anybody. Uh, as I said, five years ago, I didn't own one. Today, I own four uh, uh, different ty types of weapons. I enjoy sports shooting. I have an employee who works for me. He is a retired police sergeant. Uh, he's one of my full-time security consultants. Uh, and I think Glenn, and he is a firearms instructor, and he also trains uh, United States Marine Corps uh, snipers. He's an expert in it. He's a nationally recognized expert. He's got 20-some firearms at home. But he collects them, he uses them for training, he uses them for demonstrations, he's no threat to anybody. But you may have other types of weapons as well. Remember, uh, weapons can be anything that's used to hurt you. Weapons don't go bang, firearms go bang. So any type of a, a weapon that can be used to hurt you arouses our suspicion in my line of work. Elevated frustration levels is another one. Now, if that one in and of itself were a sole cause, we'd all be a threat to one another because we've all had those days when, uh, you know, we, we slammed the door a little harder than we probably needed to, or we said the words in mixed company that we probably shouldn't have said. It's human. But we also know that elevated frustration levels, when it happens frequently, leads to the increases in stress. And we know that a person who's, who's overly stressed can respond with temper, anger, and hostility and violence. Impaired neural functions is one of those that, and as I said a few minutes ago in the introduction, we know that a person does not typically go from calm to physically violent. They go through some behavioral changes. This is one of the exceptions. When we talk about impaired neural functions, it can be post-traumatic or it can be metabolic. But this is one of the exceptions. People with some type of an impaired neural function can be perfectly fine one moment and explode in a violent rage the next. They are the exception to that rule, or they're one of a couple of exceptions to the rule, I should say. So anytime you're dealing with anybody with some type of post-traumatic head injury, uh, 
or some type of metabolic, whether it's a, a chemical imbalance, uh, it could be a stroke, a CVA, anything along those lines. Anything that can result in a neurodeficit can also result in an increased propensity to sudden outbursts of violence. Personality disorders, you know, that, that's kind of a catch-all, uh, but any of us who have ever spent any time working in behavioral uh, environment know that that can be a real risk and the trying to communicate at times with patients with these diseases or with these disorders, I should say, uh, can be very complicated and very frustrating. And if it's frustrating for us, it's probably 10 times more frustrating for them. Uh, they have expectations, and when those expectations aren't being met, they oftentimes will resort to aggression and violence. We'll tie those two in together because of time. You know, I'm going to put the next two up together as well, chemical dependence and alcohol dependence. The, the optimum word here, friends, is dependence. And, you know, I, I'm much more worried about the, when we talk about somebody who has a dependency, whether it's chemical or alcohol, as long as that dependency is being met, they typically will function in a normal way. The risk you run into is when that dependency is not being met. Uh, then they're going through physiological changes, they're going through mental health changes, uh, and they can become a very serious risk to us. But along with that, not so much on the dependency side, I'm also concerned about the occasional drinker or the recreational drinker, if you will. All of us know somebody that's a really good person most of the time, but when they start consuming alcohol, they go through some behavioral changes and can become really obnoxious and really confrontational. I've had one in my life for 30 some years now. It's my business partner, Chris Sorensen. And Chris is not in my office right now. He's next door in his office. But Chris and I have, uh, we've been together for 30 some years now, probably longer than most marriages last. Uh, and we've built the company from just a vision at my kitchen table back in the 1990s. Chris is probably the best guy I've ever known. I'd give you, I'd give him the shirt off my back and I know he would do the same for me. He'd also do the same for any of you, even though he doesn't know you. But Chris is also, and he knows this and by his own admission, he's one of those individuals that when he drinks certain types of alcohol, he goes through some behavioral changes and becomes obnoxious and he becomes difficult to be around. And he's smart enough. He knows that. So he stays away from him. Never had a problem with it. But, you know, you get that guy who comes into your ED or you get that guy who comes in to visit and they stopped and they had a few drinks on the way in. And now all of a sudden they've got their chest out and they got their shoulders back and uh, they're going to set the world on fire because they're there and they're the boss and you're going to do it their way or they're going to show you what's going to happen. You know, normal circumstances, they wouldn't behave like that. So anytime I've got anybody with alcohol on their breath, you know, my, my guard goes up. I have, again, that heightened sense of awareness that I talked about. And I realize that the vulnerabilities are up as well. So I want to be prepared to deal with it. And another one is erotomania, people who become sexually aroused by violence, but even beyond the sexual arousal, people who become emotionally stimulated by violence, people who accept violence as an acceptable way of dealing with their problems, people who can look at a violent incident and what might shock and appall most of us uh, in normal society, if you will, they find it entertaining, they find it amusing, they find it arousing, they find it emotionally stimulating. These people, again, can be very dangerous because to them, violence becomes an acceptable way of managing your problems. Got to work on these fast fingers. Now, I mentioned at the start of the program, I said people don't go, and I've said it a couple times, people do not typically go from a state of calm to a state of physically violent. 
they go typically, and there's exceptions as I've mentioned, they go typically through a number of behavioral changes that lead up to the physical violence. We call this the aggression continuum. I want you to think of a six-foot stepladder as you see on your screen right there. We use a six-foot stepladder. It's a fantastic visual for training this. Every one of us see six-foot stepladders at home. We see them around the, around the workplace. You know, it, it, it's as common as could be. Every rung on that ladder represents a change in behavior. Now, imagine yourself climbing that ladder. Look at the ladder for just a moment. Think about yourself climbing that ladder. You start on that bottom rung. Now, just stand there for a minute. Think about your safety on that bottom rung. You've got the whole ladder that you can lean into. It's well supported. It's not going to fall over. You've got those side rails that you can hold on to. As you're going up the ladder, you're safe. But the higher you go, the more precarious things become. When I get up to that fourth or fifth rung, when I get up in here, all of a sudden now my balance is becoming a little bit more compromised. My safety is certainly compromised as well. I don't have good balance. I don't have that full length of the six foot step ladder to lean into. Now the only thing that's touching the ladder is probably from my knees down. Everything above my knees is probably up above the, the top rung now. I don't have much to hold on to. I'm beyond those side rails. I don't have anything to hold on to. So I'm getting closer I get to the top, the more dangerous it becomes. Ultimately, I get up to that top step up there. And remember your ladder. There's that big sticker on it that says, hey, dummy, don't stand here. You're going to fall and get hurt. That's where the danger is. Right? That's where the hazard is. Now, just a side note, real quick. You see the word danger there. Safety professionals use three terms, warning, caution, and danger. Warning means there's something here that can hurt you. Caution, or no, I'm sorry, I said back. Caution means there's something here that can hurt you. Warning means there's something here that can hurt you really bad. Danger means there's something here that can kill you. So think about that. When you think about that top step on the ladder and you think about somebody's behaviors when they get up that high, the word there is danger. Danger means there's something here that could kill you. When we look at the ladder, though, when we look at the different behaviors, we start, as I said, at that bottom rung. That bottom rung is what we call calm. Very simple word, very routine word for us. When a person is calm, think about your normal contacts every day, patients, residents, family members, coworkers, employees, employers, supervisors, nursing managers, whatever. Think about your normal day-to-day -day contact. Most everybody we come in contact with is in a state of calm. That's the way I am right now. That's the way I'm hoping you are right now. And I hope for your sake that the, the rest of the day and the evening are that way as well. It's the way most of our people tonight, some of you will stop at the store on the way home. You're going to see people that you know. You're going to say hello. You may see people you don't know, but there's still a pleasant greeting. I'm calm. You're calm. Everybody's good. We're not agitated. We're not upset about anything. Our presence is not threatening. When I see you in the uh, produce aisle at the grocery store, my threat is my presence is no threat to you. As I always say, I'm just another person functioning in society, and so are you. Think about it in the workplace. Think about the context that you've had. Let's just stick with today. Rainy Wednesday here in the Chicago area. Think about the context that you've had today. Right? How did you treat them people? How did they treat you? They respected your dignity. You respected theirs. If it was you were dealing with a patient or with a family member of a patient, again, you listen to their concerns. 
you're compassionate, you're caring, you're looking for ways to help them. You know, I've been in this industry my entire adult life. I, I, I know that's just another day at work for all of us. We focus on their needs. They come to us. I'm sitting at my desk. They come into my office. And I was a hospital risk manager for 15 years before I went to the corporate office. Uh, but, you know, they come into my desk, sit down and talk. They're strangers, but I'm still going to be compassionate. I'm going to be caring. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to try to find a way to help them. And I'm going to build a relationship with these people. I want when they leave there, even if I couldn't give them the answer that they wanted to hear, I want them to at least leave my office feeling that I was sensitive to them, that I was respectful of them, that I was empathetic with them, and that I tried to find a way to, to help them to the best of my capabilities. And again, after all these years in this industry, guys, I know that's how it is in your place too. Every now and then though, a person will go up the ladder. If they go up to the second rung, when they go up to the second rung, I should say, they become what we call verbally agitated. Guys, we've all been there. We've all been that person. When a person is verbally agitated, they're expressing verbal anger about something. Something has made them mad and they're verbalizing it. You know, all of us have been in that situation where we're worked up about something. We've slammed the door a little harder. We've said the bad words. You know, we've kicked the cupboards, whatever, uh, because we're worked up and we're angry about something. Now, the first thing I want you to start picking up here, when we start talking about different levels of aggression, when a person is verbally agitated, this is a good person having a bad day. All right, please realize this. This is a good person having a bad day. We've all been there. We've all said things that after it came out of our mouths, we just wanted to, we couldn't take it back, so we just wanted to find a rock to crawl under. One of the things we always look for Anytime their, their behavior is above the level of calm. Is their anger directed or is it not directed? Directed anger is a risk. Non-directed anger is no risk to you. So you're sitting there dealing with somebody and they're upset and they're verbalizing their, their anger because they had a flat tire on their car when they came into work this morning. They're not mad at you. You didn't cause their flat tire. They're not going to assault you or attack you or anything because they had a flat tire. Their anger is non-directed. Non-directed anger is no threat to you. Please hear that message. Non-directed anger is no threat to you. When non-directed anger becomes a problem is when we handle it wrong. One of the terms you'll hear me use during this presentation is, I'll oftentimes say, we push them up the ladder, which means we handle it poorly. And as a result of the way we handled it, it became worse instead of better. It became them going up the ladder instead of us de-escalating them and bringing them back down the ladder to that bottom rung of calm, right? Non-directed anger is no threat to you. Please appreciate that. So I'm dealing with that person. I've got that employee who's lacing me with profanity because they uh, had a flat tire this morning and they were late getting to work. How do we deal with that? Well, first of all, we practice what I've always called the magic art of shut up. Don't mean to sound disrespectful, friends, but that's really what we want to do. Just sit there and shush. All right. Let them talk. Let them talk themselves down. And they will do so. You know, one of the things I always emphasize when I do this program, and I'll drop it in right here. I want you to imagine for a moment that I took a champagne bottle and I set it on your desk right now. 
I know half of you are going to open it and have a chug, and that's fine. I'd probably do the same. If I took that champagne bottle and I put it on your desk, it will sit there all day and all night and be nothing more than a champagne bottle. But if I picked it up and I shook it up really well, what's happening inside that bottle, even though I don't really see it? There's pressure building up, isn't there? The carbonation's building up. There's a lot of pressure building up inside that bottle. And eventually, it builds up so much pressure that it blows its top. When it blows its top, all that pressure comes dumping out, spills out. After the pressure is vented, what have I got? I've got a bottle of champagne again. That's all it is. People are no different. Every one of us has that bottle of champagne inside of us. Every one of us can get shaken up. The pressure inside of us builds up. Shake it, shake it, shake it. Eventually, we pop our top. We spew our venom or dump our pressure if you want to. And then we're back to normal again. You don't. I don't need to do anything to get the pressure out of that champagne bottle. I just sit here and let it vent. Once it's vented, it's just a champagne bottle. I don't need to do anything with my buddy Herb, who's sitting here at my desk venting over that flat tire. Just listen to him, acknowledge him. That's all I have to do, respect him. Remember what I said, this is a good person having a bad day? We want to save that person's self-esteem. We want them to leave here, leave our office, leave the nurse's station, leave the hallway, wherever we met, with their self-esteem and their dignity intact. And guys, this is one person we don't need to be giving them orders. But again, if you do what I said and, and just stay hushed, just let them vent the pressure out of their champagne bottle. If you're not talking, you don't have to worry about giving orders. Acknowledge them. Acknowledge their feelings. Let them vent. You don't have to do a thing. But at the end, you're a genius for handling it so well. If the person continues on this path, they'll continue to vent but they'll go to the next level at times, which is called verbally hostile. Now, one of the things I'll share with you guys, verbally hostile is probably the most difficult level in the continuum to recognize. I can recognize calm. You're calm. I'm calm. We're doing great. I can recognize verbally agitated. A good person having a bad day, just spewing their venom because something's got them upset. Verbally hostile is a little bit more difficult to recognize. And the reason I say that is because the behaviors are so very similar to them being verbally agitated. Everything on step two that I talked about on verbally agitated continues to be demonstrated here. Their behaviors don't really change, except a couple of things are happening. Number one, you're starting to find yourself wondering, how much pressure does this champagne bottle hold? Steve's going on and on and on and on and on about a, having a flat tire and being 10 minutes late for work. It's not that big of a deal. Why is he going on and on so much? Is there an underlying issue? Is there something more to it? You may also hear them say statements like this blankety-blank place or you blankety-blank people, or you'll hear them use catchwords like always, never. You guys always do this. I never get treated right. When we start hearing words like that, that's, again, the waving of the red flag that they made the transition from verbally agitated to verbally hostile. The other thing I often watch for, too, and I found this to be a very reliable one. Have you ever been talking with somebody and they're so upset about something that you start to notice that their eyes are welling up with tears or you'll start to hear their voice cracking. They're trying not to start crying. They're so worked up. When they start adding that big emotional component, crying, voice cracking, changing of voice inflection because of breathing changes, 
those are real good indicators to you. Those are, are, are good signs that we can see that the person is transitioning from verbal agitation to verbal hostility. Right? But again, much the same as verbally agitated. On this one, they are still, the anger is not directed and they're not a threat to you. They're just really, really upset. Now, how we respond to a person who's escalated to the third level of the ladder and is not verbally hostile can be a little bit different, even though our, even though their, their behaviors are coming across pretty much the same way as verbally agitated. Right? But the fact that they are emotionally frail leads us to require, we've got to be sensitive of our body language. We don't want our body language to convey a message that says, I'm going to fight you, or I'm better than you, or I'm more powerful than you. We need to be sensitive. We always train to stay in what we call the interview stance. Clinicians listening to this presentation today, you're familiar with the anatomical stance or the anatomical position. Feet are, you know, you're standing straight up, hands are at your, your arms are at your side, hands are facing out, feet are shoulder width apart on a straight line, knees are slightly bent. The anatomical position. To go into the interview stance, all we're going to do is take that position, that anatomical position, bring your hands up in front of your chest. I don't care if they're facing out, they're facing towards you. I don't like for your fingers to be interlocked, but I don't mind if your hands are clasped or whatever in front of you. That's all well and fine. The reason we're doing this is because you've got to realize this person is at the third rung on a six-foot ladder. You can give them that, those next two steps to that top rung in a pretty quick time. If they were to make a sudden aggressive move against you, at least you've got your hands up in front of you to protect or defend yourself. But you've also got your hands up in front of you showing them, not verbally, that, look, I have nothing in my hands that's going to be used as a weapon against you. So they're, they're, you know, you're sending them a good message as well. I want you to respect their personal zone. Every one of us has a personal zone. We let people come in and out of it intermittently, but we don't like it when people stay in there for a long period of time. I walk into Catherine's office. Somebody's going to introduce me to Catherine. Her and I are going to have the same response. We're both going to step towards each other, extend our arms, have a, a pleasant handshake, but then watch after that. Watch the next time you're introduced to somebody. After you shake hands with them, one or both will typically take a step back. You're doing it subconsciously, but what you're doing is you're establishing your personal zone. And you're saying, this is my space, that's your space. Let's interact, let's have a great relationship, but you stay in yours, I'll stay in mine. We need to, especially right now where this person's already halfway up the ladder and is quite emotionally frail, we established, we need to respect their personal zone. We don't need to be crowding them. Again, this person, their anger is still non-directed. There's no threat to you. Continue to let them vent their anger. Let them get that pressure out of the champagne bottle. Now, when they were verbally agitated, I said we wanted to practice the magic art of keeping quiet. This one might be a little bit different because here, think about what I said. They're getting louder. They may be throwing in some obscenities, profanities. They're throwing in emotion. They may be getting teary-eyed. Other people may be looking. You know, we may need to coach them a little bit. We may need to get them to change their behaviors or their actions a little bit. Let me give you a hypothetical. I want you to imagine for a minute that Catherine is my boss, and I see her coming down the hallway. I've got the schedule in my hand. Because when I looked at the schedule a couple minutes ago, I realized that for the fourth weekend in a row, she scheduled me to work. We had family plans this weekend. I've worked the last three weekends in a row. There's no way I'm going to have to work four in a row. So we made camping plans. And we're taking the kids and the grandkids and everybody's going camping for the weekend. And we're all excited about it. 
But now her schedule just destroyed it. And everybody in my family is going to be hurt and upset because I've got to work four weekends in a row. And I'm angry. So I see Catherine coming down the hall. And I walk up to her and I say, Catherine, what in the world is going on with this schedule? You've got me scheduled to work four weekends in a row now. There's not another person in this unit. There's probably not another person in this whole company that has to work four weekends in a row. But you schedule me for four weekends in a row and nobody else ever gets that. Why don't you like me? Why are you picking on me? Why are you messing with me and my family? Now, she can see that I'm upset. She can see that I'm uh, emotional. But I'm also standing, as I said, out in the hallway where everybody else can hear me. And people are looking and people are getting quiet, wondering what's going on. What's he going to do? Catherine knows this is not the place for us to have this discussion. She knows also, though, if she tells me, Steve, you're upset. Go in my office and we'll talk. You know, I may go in her office and slam the door and have an attitude. I may tell her to go pound sand. I am not going in your office to talk. We can talk right out here. I may not be planning on complying with anything she says to do. Or she can handle it a little bit differently. She can have me go in her office and think it's my idea. And if it's my idea, it's got to be a good idea, right? Now, how do we do that? You know, when Chris Sorensen, Mr. Sorensen, my business partner, and I put this program together uh, years ago, one of the people that we were very fortunate to work with was a gentleman who owns a local car dealership here in town. Now, you think about when last time you went and bought a car, it's not a fun experience most of the time. You're defensive, you, you walk in and you feel like the vultures are just going to pounce on you, and, and it's not a pleasant experience most of the time. You can't look at the car without some sales rep pressuring you. Typically, you go in defensive because of that. Well, we've got a dealer friend here in town. His name is Bruce Dickstein. Bruce is the owner of the local Cadillac Toyota dealership, and he's been a friend for years. When we were at the hospital years ago, he was on our board, and we became very good friends. Uh, when we were putting this program together, Chris and I went over and sat out and talked with Bruce one evening, and we just asked him straight up. We said, Bruce, how do you guys do it? Customer walks in the door. They're defensive. They're resistive. You know, they may want to look at a vehicle, but they don't want a pressured salesman coming up bugging them. Uh, how do you do it? How do you diffuse that, turn it around, and by the end of the time they're there, they're buying the car? And he said, you know, it really isn't that easy. Or, excuse me. He said, it really is easy. It's not that difficult. He says, we do two things. He says, first of all, he says, we ask questions that we know they're going to say yes to. Because we know the more they agree with us, the more they're going to be inclined to do what we want them to do at the end. And he said, secondly, to do that, he says, we ask a lot of questions that end in N apostrophe T words. Can't, won't, shouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't, that type of thing. Thought about it. And I've been car shopping in the last year myself now. Watch the next time. Think about the next time you walk into a dealership. You walk in. Now think about when you walk in. You want to look at that car that you see on the showroom floor. You're thinking about trading cars. It's a good-looking car. So you walk in, but the minute you cross the threshold, you're almost in a fighting stance because you know the minute you walk in, the vultures are going to pounce on you. But you want to look at that car. So you walk in, and before you even get up to the car, one of the first sales reps are on you. Hi, I'm Steve. Welcome to my friendly car lot. Shaking hands, everything we talk about. Watch the first question that that person will ask you, that sales rep. He knows the answer to this question, but he's going to get you to answer yes. It's a beauty, isn't it? Well, he knows you're interested in this car. What are you saying? No, I stopped because it's so ridiculously ugly. He knows you wouldn't waste your time to come in if you weren't interested in it. But he's going to play that 
to get you to start the process of agreeing with everything he says. So it's a beauty, isn't it? There's our apostrophe T word too. So you see, and he says, uh, probably like to take it for a test drive, wouldn't you? Yeah, there again. What are you going to say? No, I just, I'm not going to buy it. I'm just looking at it. Some people might, but most people, if they're interested in the car, they're going, well, I can never afford it. But yeah, let's take it for a drive. I'll probably never get to drive one again. So what's he do? He's now got you agreeing with him. Let's get you driving the car. So you're driving down the road, and he's going to ask you the next question that he already knows the answer to. Drives great, doesn't it? There's my anapostrophe T word again. He knows you're going to say, what are you going to say? No, it's got three miles on it and it pulls to the left. Of course it drives great. It's a new car. He, but he knew your answer before you got to it. So he's telling you how great you look driving the car and all the, showing you all the bells and whistles and everything else on it. Then he's going to get to his next question. Steve, you really look great in this car. I'll bet if I can get this into your payment range, you'd probably be interested in it, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, but I know I could never afford it. Yeah, let me worry about that. So you see what he's doing here? He's using an apostrophe T words to get you to agree with him. We can do the same thing with my situation with Catherine. When I see her in the hall and I start blowing my fuse at her, start letting the pressure out of my champagne bottle in front of everybody, instead of saying, Steve, you're upset, go in my office. How about she says, Steve, I know you're upset. I'm really sorry. This isn't the best place to talk about it. We can go in my office, can't we? What am I going to say? No, I want to stand out here in the hallway and make a fool of myself. She's given me the option, and that's where the success lies, giving me the option. If I say no, then she's going to say, well, I'm not going to stand out here and talk about it, Steve. We can go in my office, can't we? Right? And get her, get them to agree. Keep your instructions minimal. Use those apostrophe T words. And continue to make collaborative statements with them. You know, ask the person, how can I resolve this? How can I fix this to your satisfaction? We can sit there all day and guess what the end result they want. Why not ask them? You know, I was in a, a motivational program years ago, and, and everybody in the room, we had to grab each other's hand in a handshake and squeeze really hard. And then you had to get out of that handshake without striking the other person and without hurting them. You know the easiest way that we got out of it? We asked the other person, please let go of my hand. Ask and you'll get, don't and you won't. Make collaborative statements. What can we do to manage a situation? How can I help you? What you're asking for, I can't do. What could we do in the meantime? Let me offer you some options. Let me give you some things to think about. And again, as I said, they may keep going back. You guys always happens here. I never get this response. I called last time and this is what they, well, sir, I'm sorry. I can't change history. I can't undo the past, but I'm sure going to work with you any way I can here to focus on the present, to fix it to your satisfaction to the best I can. So again, keep it specific to the here and now. Now, calm, verbally agitated, verbally hostile. Commonality is non-directed anger. We're going to go now to the fourth step. Look at how close we're starting to get, guys. The good news is verbally hostile is typically about as high as most people go. When a person starts to get verbally threatening, though, the world starts to change. Danger starts to present itself. Okay, they begin to focus their anger. They begin to direct their anger. Right now, they're starting to give away who they're going to take it out on. They may call you by name. Catherine, you listen to me. But along with calling her by name, I may also be pointing my finger at her. And I also said, you, you listen to me. Is there any confusing who I'm angry at? Is there any confusing who I'm directing my anger at? 
I've given you three clues. I called her by name. I said you, and I pointed at her. Right? It's pretty obvious if I get physical, who I'm going to turn against. I'm telegraphing it there. That anger also may be directed at a third party. Catherine, I got no problem with you. You're a fantastic nurse. You're always good to my family. But I'll tell you right now, I, I'm so upset with Dr. Smith. If he walks in here right now, I swear I'll break his knees. I, I'm no threat to Catherine. I just told her that. I've got no problem with you at all. You're a great nurse. You're a good person. You're, you're everything we could ask for in a nurse. But I'm so angry at that doctor right now that I don't know that I could contain myself if he walked in. So what do we have to do to avoid violence? We've got to make sure Dr. Smith doesn't come walking in. Right? Watch directed anger. It can be directed at you or it can be directed at another person. You may also see these people make a demand for actions and making threats of consequences. They'll tell you, you're going to do this or I'm going to do this. Right? You're going to get me a stronger medication or I'm going to blow up and, and just go off on everybody in here. You're going to let me see my mom. Or I'm going to go out in my car and I'm going to get my gun and I'm going to come back here and blow everybody away. We seem to be hearing that one a lot lately. But they're going to make demands for actions and they're going to make threats of consequences. How we respond to that one, guys, the first thing I want you to do, I want you to maintain eye contact. Right Now, I'm big on eye contact because I believe the eyes are the pathway to the mind. The eyes will tell you what the mind is thinking. But I also want you to be cognizant you don't get into a stare-down contest. Stare-down contest, somebody has to win, somebody has to lose. And there's no room for anybody to lose here. One loses, everybody loses. But watch their eyes. Maintain eye contact. Their eyes will tell you what to do, what they're thinking. I want you to avoid cornering the person. And we'll talk about cornering in a minute. Cornering means to trap. And again, this is a person we don't want to tell them what to do, but we do want to give them options. Let them see what the choices are in a calm voice. Try to help them make the right choice. Try to help them make the right choice of the options that are available. They can't add options at their own pleasure, but let them know, again, respectfully, but firmly, that here's the options that we have in front of us that we can work with. And I want you guys to start anticipating violence. Now, on the screen, you'll see this is green, and that's intentional. A number of years ago, we were working with a hospital up in Michigan. When they called a code, they called a code green. Again, I hate color codes. I've got to be quieter when I go off on a tangent. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if you're going to call a code, this is where I would want you calling your code. When we work with that hospital, I told them, this is where you call your code green. That's why this is in green. If you wait any longer than this to call your security code, it may be too late because this person is, you know, two steps, probably a step and a half away at this point from getting to that top step where the violence is. Now, I mentioned a minute ago, and we can go back and look at it again. The second point there says avoid cornering the person. Cornering means to trap. You can take the most loving, docile animal, and you trap it in a corner, and it's going to fight its way out. Its fight or flight is going to kick in, and it's either going to run or it's going to fight you and attack you. Right? People are no different. We use the acronym CAPE, C-A-P-E, to remember the four different types of cornering in healthcare. First one is what we call contact cornering. And you know, guys, healthcare is a doggone touchy-feely. We have to learn to keep our hands off of other people. Years ago, when I was working in the uh, hospital as a risk manager, 
and it was a, a relatively small 250 bed hospital medium size i guess in a rural community it was a faith-based hospital catholic hospital we had an incident uh on a weekday afternoon where a traffic accident out in the rural part of the county had resulted in the death of a 16 year old girl sad case a very tragic case but you know the, the parents get the phone call that no parent wants to get come to the hospital your daughter's been in an accident and when they got there they put when the parents got there they were placed in a the family room which was adjacent to the er which uh, was used to convey private information and at one point the doctor and, and the nurse had to go out and tell these parents what no parent deserves to ever hear that your daughter wasn't coming home and our protocol was always that you would have the physician you'd have a nurse you would have somebody from pastoral care and we would have somebody from security close by uh, just in case the person became violent which some did but we didn't know that so the physician that day was talking to the family and when he conveyed the bad news to them the father had you know an obvious emotional breakdown sister inga who was one of the nuns in our pastoral care department was there and sister put her arm around this dad to try to console him he did not want to be touched when she did that he blew up he said get your blanket hands off of me and he pushed sister and he knocked her down right on her derriere he wasn't trying to pick a fight with sister or anything he didn't want to be touched and we are such a touchy-feely industry we have to learn to keep our hands off right so when you touch a person you know you do it without thinking about it but they may sense it as you are trapping them you are laying your hands on them to control them second one is the angular cornering angular cornering is you're standing there or somebody's sitting there you're talking to them and the whole time that you're talking you're pacing and they're not even able to pay attention to what you say because their eyes are chasing you all over the place as you're walking back and forth. You know, their eyes look like they're in a tennis match or a ping pong match, right? If you're going to be dealing with somebody like this, please put yourself in one location, park it, and give them your attention. Don't force them to chase you with their eyes. The next one is psychological cornering. Psychological cornering is... You know, we all know the old trick of I'll sit behind my desk and you sit across from me and I'll be more dominant that way. Or you sit in the chair and I'll stand over you with my arms crossed and look down at you and I'll be more dominant. Nobody wants to be dominated over. So, you know, when we start psychologically trapping a person and make ourselves dominant over them, it's not going to work. You're not going to get the results you need. Put yourself on their level. Now, that being said, I often get asked, Steve, when am I sitting and when am I standing? And my response is a little bit complicated. It depends where they are on the continuum. Again, I'll say calm, physically, or I'm sorry, calm, verbally agitated, verbally hostile. The three commonalities are non-directed anger. If they are calm, verbally agitated, verbally hostile, where their anger is non-directed, and they are sitting down, I'm okay with you sitting down. Anytime they are standing, I want you standing. I don't ever want a situation where they're standing over you and you're sitting down. It's too dangerous for you. And when they hit that fourth rung, where we are right now, where they're verbally threatening, anytime they're at the fourth, fifth, or sixth rung, you have to be standing regardless of where they are. Right? They're more than likely going to be standing at that point, too. And the last one, guys, is exit cornering. Exit cornering, we do two different ways. 
The first one is we position ourselves, and I see this in EDs a lot, and I see it in behavioral health units a lot. We go in to talk to the patient, and we position ourselves right in the doorway. The doorway is open, but we stand in the opening, and we send a nonverbal clue that says, you can't leave. If you want out of here, you got to go through me or over me, right? Just step off to the side. Whether that person can get up and leave or not doesn't matter to me, but we just, again, we, just the psychological effect of that open doorway versus having somebody blocking the doorway can make all the difference in the world. The other way, though, that we exit corner is we get ourselves exit cornered. We allow the person who is escalating against us to physically position themselves so that they are now between us and the door. Again, the only way for me to get out now is through them or over them, and I don't want to fight. That's not what I came to work tonight for. The other thing I want you to think about, too, many of you, have, I know I'm going to have administrators and, and HR executives on the call. Look at your offices. I can almost describe your office to you. Behind you is your credenza with all your pictures and all your three-ring binders and everything that makes you look important. Then you've got your executive chair. Then you've got your desk. Then you've got a couple of chairs across from your desk for people to sit and visit with you. Then over in one corner of your office, you've got a little round conference table with two or three chairs at it. And then behind that is the door. Look at how you are from the door and look at what is between you. Those chairs, the visitor chairs at your desk are between you. Those chairs at the conference table are between you. Anybody sitting in those has you exit trapped at your desk. The only way for you to get out is through them or over them. You need to rearrange your offices. You need to be the closest one to the door. Now, if the person continues to escalate, they will go to the fifth rung, where they become physically threatening. And guys, the world's getting ugly now. When they become physically threatening, they may take a stance that will suggest violence. They may start looking around, again, watching their eyes. They may start looking around. What have you got on your desk that I could use as a weapon against you? What have I got here in my patient room? What have I got here in this treatment room? What can I use as a, what's my weapons of opportunity that I could use to hurt you? Remember I said weapons don't go bank. Weapons are anything that can be used to hurt you. And they may make an aggressive move. They may make a, a, a test move on you. They'll fake like they're going to punch you. or They'll just make a sudden twitch or something like that. They're testing you. They want to see how prepared you are if they make an aggressive move against you. If you turn and curl up into a ball, you pretty much told them that you're scared and they won. Right? So they're wanting to see if they've got the upper hand at this point. Your response here, my friends, is first of all, you've got to realize this is the critical point. The next step is dangerous. I want you in a defensive posture. Remember, we've been in that interview stance and we said our feet were on a straight line. I want you to drop your strong side foot. I'm right-handed, my right side is my strong side. I'm going to drop my strong side foot back about three-quarters of a step, and I'm going to turn my foot out to about a 45-degree angle. It's a casual stance, but, you know, when I'm standing there with my feet on a straight line, all they got to do is push me, and I'm going to fall over backward. But when I put myself in that defensive stance where I drop my strong side foot back uh, three-quarters of a step and, and turn it out to about a 45-degree angle, they try to push me now, I can resist. I'm going to be like pushing over a fire hydrant, if you will. That is critical. I don't ever want to be knocked down. I want you to look for strong side, weak side indicators. Are they left-handed or are they right-handed? I always want you to try to get yourself to their weak side. That gives you all kinds of advantages should they make an aggressive move. And at this point, I want you to be prepared for a physical attack because if they go to the next step, it's not going to be a good one because the next step is where they're physically violent. They physically attack you in some form. Right? 
When that happens, guys, the world's changed, right? Your response now, you change into a self-defense and survival mode, right? They're trying to hurt you. They may be trying to end your life, right? You have to protect yourself. Now, when we talk about responding to these situations, we are a big advocate. You know, a lot of the hospital clients I work with across the nation, they've got, especially seen in smaller hospitals, if they call for the code, you know, Dr. Strong or whatever, every male employee on duty comes running. It almost becomes a testosterone party. And that's not good because that's how people get hurt. I would much rather you have, excuse me, I'm sorry, I would much rather you have a well-trained response team, just like you've got a code team. If you have a code blue, every nurse on duty doesn't come running. You've got dedicated, trained people who are going to respond. I want, I want to see the same thing for you to have if you have a security call, a trained, dedicated response team on each shift that's going to respond. Right. For a verbal de-escalation, three people. For a physical, where you're going to have to control their physical uh, behaviors and, and possibly apply restraints, what we call a takedown, five, no more than six people. Everybody's trained. Everybody has a role. Right? We're focusing today on talk downs. We're talking, we're focusing on a three-person. When we're talking about a three-person talk down team, we use what we call the triangle approach. Sounds like an NBA offense. I assure you it's not. Right? You can see my buddy Herb here. He's hopping up and down mad. Red face, blood pressure's high. He's upset. I've got my three-person response team. All right. First of all, I've got the person in charge. Now let's talk about that for just a second, real quick. Being in charge doesn't mean that you're the highest-ranking hospital or company official. It doesn't mean that you're the house supervisor or the, the ranking officer there. It means you're the person closest to the guy who's upset. Because if he gets upset enough and gets physically violent, he's going to get upset. To, he's going to get violent with the person closest to him. Right? And sometimes this is hard for, for people to understand. It doesn't have anything to do with title or years of service or, or rank or anything else. Whoever's closest to the person that's getting becoming the aggressor is the person who's in charge. Then I have my two backups. You see where I get the triangle backup, or the triangle approach? All right? The person who's in charge, that person up front, is the only one that does any talking. He's the only one doing the antipostrophe T words. He's the only one that's uh, uh, collaborating with the person, trying to find a satisfactory resolution for both. All right. The other two people in the back, they don't say a word. They are there for backup purposes. They are there strictly to help out. Right. If this guy's already upset enough, our aggressor's already upset enough, and we got all, all three people trying to talk, it doesn't sound like anything but a bunch of buzzing bees to him at that point. You know, when that happens, you know, it just, it's not good. It's just more frustrating, causes more stress, and causes him to escalate his behaviors even quicker. Now, time to time, I may be the person in charge. The bad guy, or excuse me, I shouldn't say that, the aggressor doesn't like my looks, doesn't like my attitude, doesn't like my tone of voice, doesn't like my body posture, something about me that the aggressor doesn't care for. Right? This isn't about my ego. Maybe instead of me being up front, somebody else, one of my two backups, should step up and take over for me. If that happens, what we're going to do is we're just going to simply, let's say the backup number two is going to step up and take my place. Right? So all we're going to do is backup number two is going to start, is going to come up. I'm going to switch back. I'm no longer in charge now. 
Backup number two has moved up to the post. He is now, or she is now in charge, and I'm back here, and now I follow that rule. I'm just there as a backup, as a safety. I don't say a word. Backup one, you don't say a word. New person in charge, you do all the talking. Might be a different look, a different voice, a different hairstyle, whatever the case may be. Something different may just work. Now, I know we've gotten close to our time that's allowed. Uh, Kath, I, I hope, except my apologies if we ran over. Like I said at the beginning, it's a subject I'm very passionate about. I've just worked with too many healthcare facilities in my career that have had uh, uh, everything from bad to catastrophic outcomes. So uh, it's a subject I'm just really passionate about. Okay, great. Um, thank you so much, Steve. So um, we do have a few questions. Um, so the first one we have is, should we incorporate this into our active shooter policy? No, in a word, no. Dealing with an active shooter is totally different than dealing with somebody whose behaviors are escalating. You try to talk down an active shooting, active shooter, you're going to get shot. That person comes in with a mindset to kill, right? And they don't care who. So, you know, to answer the question, absolutely not. Two very different scenarios. Ooh, okay. All right. Um, got it. Um, you mentioned some common behaviors. If we see someone demonstrating these, um, what should we do? Um, in, in very simple terms, report it. There, there's an adage that we use in our business. If you see something, if you hear something, say something. In other words, if you see something that doesn't look right, say something to a supervisor. If you hear something said that doesn't sound right or sounds threatening, say something to a supervisor. In this day and age, there's no such thing as an idle threat. So always remember that adage. If you hear something, if you see something, please say something to a supervisor. Okay. Um, this one has to do with afterwards. Um, We've had some re recent occurrences, and I know they can be difficult on the staff. How do we deal with the aftermath? Yeah, they can be. It can be emotional. It can be scary. Um, I've seen people want to leave their jobs because of dealing with stuff like this. Because you just you reach a point where you say enough's enough. Um, talking with them is the best thing you can do. And I'm a big advocate, uh, and I always tell my clients after an event. Get the people who are involved together for five or ten minutes. Talk about it. Talk about what did we do well? What could we have done better? How did you feel when it was happening? Uh, you know, what, what was going on in your mind? How did you feel your composure was? How did you feel your readiness was? Talk about it. Work through it. And almost take a quality improvement perspective. What did we do well, but what could we have done better? Um, well, do you have any more, um, any Final words of advice or anything that you'd like to leave us with at all? Uh, yeah, it can happen to you. It's just, you know, the, I wish I could figure out what in the world was going on in our society that is causing violence to become so commonplace. I'm here in Illinois. Our state legislators just passed a new law, the Illinois Health Care Worker, I'm sorry, the Illinois Health Care uh, Violence Protection Act. Uh, we had an incident 18 months ago at a hospital here in Illinois where a forensic patient was able to escape, overpower the corrections officer, take his gun, took a nurse hostage, uh, sexually assaulted her repeatedly uh, in a locked room uh, while they were trying to negotiate him out. Uh, and finally, the police ended up storming the place, shot and killed the uh, offender, and in the process, the nurse was injured. 
you know, these events are just happening all too often. And it's not a Chicago thing. It's all over the nation that it's happening. I get alerts all the time when these things happen. And I can tell you they're happening all over the country. We just had, uh, uh, you know, everybody's familiar with the incident at the Hacienda uh, Retirement Community in Arizona where the uh, uh, comatose patient gave birth or a comatose resident gives birth. And it turns out to be a, a, an employee who impregnated her. Uh, just this week, they had an armed intruder there, and the police shot and killed him. Uh, as recently as uh, within the last few days, there have been an incident out. There have been two incidents out in uh, Springfield, Oregon, where armed intruders in hospitals have, have caused problems. So, you know, it's happening across the country, and we just have to be ready for it. Well, thank you, um, thank you, Steve, so much. No, um, I'm always the bearer of good news, Kathy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, thank you. So, um, attendees, please use the contact information on the screen for any questions. And if you have any other questions, please, uh, you can send those questions on to us and we'll forward them on. Please remember that your PACOM and your PMI certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. Uh, don't forget, also, you can download a copy of the uh, slides, of the um, a PDF of the slides, um, right here on the right-hand side um, of the screen. And also, you can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.